Dilemma. I'm your host, Trish Close. An amazing conversation on the podcast today with Shelly Chapman. She's a mindful nutritionist. She has a cooking show on her YouTube channel called The Mindful Plate, and she's the founder of the Mindful Nutrition School. Her connection with food started at a very early age, growing up with a Southern dad and a Jamaican mom, but that connection wasn't always a healthy one. As a teenager, she developed an eating disorder, compulsive overeating. She says she was really filling up holes within herself with food instead of dealing with those emotions head on. That eating disorder, on and off throughout the years, she says it was really a week of loss, major loss, that she said, that's when I need to make some changes. Her first step was dealing with all of those emotions. Second step, changing her eating habits. She went from a size 12 to a size 2 within one year. How'd she do it? Well, she'll tell you step by step. She says it's really about not so much working out as it is working in. She says the secret is it all starts with you. Here's Shelly Chapman. Shelly Chapman, welcome to my new pod hole. This is new, by the way. First guest in my new pod hole. I was wondering, I was like, where's the kitchen? <laughs> That's what's up. I love it. So you you are uh, a brand new in my new pothole. Yes, I've been doing them in my kitchen. Um, and if anybody follows me on social media, I've talked about how much of a pain in the ass it is. Huge, huge pain in the ass. The dogs bark all the time. And I was like, I just need a space that's kind of, that's a little bit quiet. So here we are. And we've got Julia Child behind us. Hey, girl. Watch... <laughs> watching over us rosie the riveter i got i got my salt and pepper shaker over here so i'm just uh i'm super excited and this little on on air thing i stole that from my last station i love it i love it (laughs) um thank you for for being here you are in brooklyn new york today yeah that's where you're based okay uh, Shelly Chapman, uh, also known as Shelly Wellness. Uh, you're a mindful nutritionist. Uh, you host the Mindful Plate Show on YouTube, correct? Right okay. Here. And then right the founder here. of Mindful Nutrition School. So you are all about nutrition. In fact, you're a vegan. I am plant-based, not vegan, but I am plant-based. And I make the difference because vegan is generally about values and like, you know, you may not wear any animal clothing, et cetera. For me, I'm plant-based. I'm more so about centering my meals heavily in plants, but occasionally I may have eggs. um, I may have fish. I may have meat. It's rare though. And it's generally when I travel because it's just more challenging for me. Oh, for sure. Okay. I definitely want to talk about that because there are so many different thoughts and misconceptions when it comes to nutrition, especially, but let's begin with my, one of my favorite questions. Where are you from originally? Yes, I hail from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I like to say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman of the world. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, but I was also raised in Rotterdam, Holland. And I was made in Germany. I spent my first year of life in Germany. So my parents were traveling and living abroad when I was young. So wherever they went, I went. Um, but we spent the majority of our time in Atlanta, Georgia. So that's where I'm from. And then my mother is from Jamaica and my father is from Alabama. So I'm a, I'm a global mix. Mm, I love those are the best kind in my opinion. Um, I tell people I was made in Georgia and I'm from South Carolina. Ah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. 
So um, why the split then? Is it, was it parents' jobs? Like why, why uh, the split? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my parents met in the military and they were both stationed in Germany at the time. And then um, afterwards they moved back to the States and then they decided they really enjoyed living in Europe. And so they wanted to go back. So I spent majority of my elementary childhood in uh, Europe and then my middle school, high school years back in Atlanta. So my foundational years were over in Europe and I loved it because honestly, I say this all the time that it was the first time, well, I shouldn't say the first time I was obviously a little girl, I didn't know, but it was the only time in my life that I remember just being a human and not necessarily being black or being a girl, but just being a human because there was so much safety and protection in Rotterdam and Rotterdam's a very international city. And coming back to Atlanta, Georgia, as you know, it's the South. The South does have a legacy sometimes of, um, you know, not treating everybody the kindness and the most equal. And so being in that space and time in Europe was just a very free time as a child. And I loved it. Well, and you could also argue those are your formative years, right? That's when really you are setting mm-hmm. a lot of stuff up in here. And so for you as a little girl there, you know, you're, yes, you're just a human. Was it weird then? coming back to Atlanta and were you like almost like no 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 you can't you can't think that way was that the case well my parents had already let me know that the world was different in many ways and so I was aware right I was aware that there was a thought and a a way of thinking that um just because of the color you were saying you might be treated differently and I did experience that when I came back it was 1992 um and I was in middle school and so at that time like Things were changing, but they hadn't fully shifted. We didn't have the reckoning of like, you know, uh, 2020. Um, And so with that, I just remember I had a mother and a father who truly believed in me. And I also had a community who believed in me. And so when I encountered racism in school, my parents were there to make sure that I was treated and given the best education as any other child. And so once educators saw that my parents were really involved in my my upbringing and my well-being, they also kind of switched and were like, okay, we can't mess with that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I guess it just, it, it sucks that it had to get to that. Right. Yeah. But it Everything, is, what it is, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And, and I recognize that the world has changed so much and I'm grateful. So my children will have a totally different experience than I did. But like I said, being in Europe, I didn't have that experience at all. So I knew that there was a different way of being and thinking, you know, for sure. Um, was food yeah. important to your family growing up? Ooh, come on now. Was food important? Food was everything. I tell everybody, I'm like, they're like, how did you get into food? I said, because I was born with taste buds. Uh-huh. My family cooked. So, you know, I grew up in a family where we ate meals together every day, like at dinner, Saturday breakfast. My father cooked and my mother cooked. Um, My father was my first culinary teacher. So um, he was my primary caretaker when I was little because my mother was still in school and working. And then my father, he was just working. So I spent a lot of time with him and he was always cooking for me and my friends. Like the neighborhood kids love my dad. They would come and knock on the door and ask my mom, can Mr. Chapman come outside and play? So he fed us all, he took care of us all. And then um, when I became a teenager, when I was 14, my mom uh, would meal prep, right? And so she would meal prep for the entire week. And I was in the kitchen with her, I was her assistant. So every Saturday, 
from age 14 to 18, I was in the kitchen learning how to cook. So I always say like I got my creativity a lot from my father and I got my ability to plan out and and think about like how do you create enough food for the whole week, et cetera. And my, my grocery shopping and budgeting skills from my mom. Wow. That's an amazing foundation. You don't hear that often that both parents were cooking or both parents were in the kitchen. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It sounds they, like they, they did. Sounds like good cooks too. Oh, come on. Amazing cooks. My father is from the South. So we have that good Southern cuisine. My mother's from Jamaica. So I have that beautiful Caribbean cuisine. And then both of them had traveled before I was even born. And so they were very much influenced by the countries they visited. And then of course, where we live. So my taste buds were very, very open from an early age. Yeah. They hooked you up. Seriously. That's amazing. Do y'all eat grits? Now, of course, you know, it's interesting. So I find, I find that um, grits like this corn dish is, is almost foundationally in a lot of places. And so in Jamaica, they don't call it grits. They call it turn cornmeal. And so we would have what we call cornmeal porridge. It's, it's giving a blend of grits and cream of wheat come together. That's kind of what it resembles. And then of course, for my father, I grew up eating grits and I loved grits with sugar. I could not just do, he was a grits with butter and salt and pepper. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that I'm older, I can do the savory grits more, but yeah, I loved grits. I still do. Okay. So let's talk about you're a teenager in Atlanta. What are your, what are your goals in life? What are you wanting to be when you grow up? I'm wanting to be in New York where I am now. I'm so wanting to live in New York. I was heavily influenced by, um, I don't know if you remember this show, Living Single, with yes. Queen Latifah. Yes. <laughs> I can sing it for so you if you want. want. I can sing yes. I, living single. Hey. <laughs> yes. So I love that show. And I wanted to like get a brownstone apartment, live with my girls. So I just wanted to be in New York. What I was going to be doing, honestly, I'm a teenager. I didn't know. But what I did know is this. I was going to go to Spelman College. I was going to graduate, get a degree in something, and then go live in New York. And so that's a long story short. It's essentially what I did. There were some detours, but essentially that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, why New York? <laughs> but I didn't want to bring food. Why New York? Um, I mean, I know the show, but was it just was it just this like kind of shining star? It was the energy and the vibrancy growing up in Atlanta. So even I grew up in Atlanta, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in a, in a city called Peachtree City. For any of you who know, that's Golf Cart City. Um, and Peachtree City at the time was very mostly Caucasian. There were not a lot of diversity there. It wasn't a diverse city. I lived in my on my street for seven years and we were the only black family the whole time I was there. So mind you, we got along with our neighbors, et cetera. But I just knew after living in Europe, Europe was way, in Rotterdam, Holland, it was way more diverse. I knew that there was going to be a city that had way more diversity in terms of people, language, food, experiences. And I wanted to be a part of that. And New York City was that city for me in the United States. So that was really it. I just wanted to go somewhere. And I also didn't want to have to drive. If you live in Atlanta, you know you have to drive everywhere. I just wanted to hop on a train and get to where I'm going. Yep. Yeah, walk around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it sounds like you were missing that diversity in all of those experiences that you did encounter as a young child. So yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what'd you major in? 
psychology and minored in Spanish. Oh, I minored in Spanish. You do? You can't speak a lick. I still remember I was actually in Panama recently. I went there for five weeks and I was like, okay, we're we're still here. Mm -hmm. But I I minored in Spanish and studied psychology because at the time I thought that I was going to become a therapist. And so um, side story, um, I had experienced, started experiencing an eating disorder when I was a teenager. And that was compulsive overeating. And essentially, I was going through a rough time in my life, and I didn't have the emotional tools to deal with it. And when you're a teenager, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. You just end up doing the thing that feels good in the moment. So for me, what felt good was brown sugar Pop-Tarts, Cheetos, the puffy and the crunchy kind, and Oreo cookies. And I would overindulge in those Um And what I was dealing with was my parents' divorce. And it was just really heartbreaking for me because that was my world, that was my family. And so in um, sophomore, junior year of high school, my parents were divorcing and it was really challenging. And so I started getting therapy for it. And when I was in college, I realized like, I want to help other women who are struggling with this and, you know, have them not have to go through this the way I was going through it. And so I was concurrently working on healing my relationship with food while also studying to see how can I become a therapist to help other women. So is it, were you uh, compulsive overeating? That's different than like bulimia. Right, exactly. So compulsive overeating is generally when you are overeating food, your body sends you the full signal and you don't stop. You just keep eating. And so generally when it's like for in my, in my particular situation, because I was eating to fill an emotional void there, there, there's not, there wasn't enough food to obviously cover up that pain. So I keep eating because the food felt good. It tasted good. And I wanted to get away from that emotion that didn't feel so good. So I was using food to fill my holes rather than using food to nourish me and make me whole. Oh man. And we all do that. Don't we? Like, I feel like so many of us do that. Yeah. And sometimes it's not food, right? Sometimes it could be overspending. It could be overthinking. It could be, um, over, over drinking, over smoking. There's so many ways that people have biases to deal with life outside of actually dealing with it with those proper emotional tools. Yeah, for sure. Um, so then in college, did the, um, overeating continue or were you kind of like nipping it in the bud at that point? That's when I realized that that's what was happening. So it was still continuing, but now it was continuing consciously. Whereas before I was completely unconscious. And so I'll say I spent the majority of my twenties, um, working at trying to deal with this and like not do it. So I would have these ways where it's like, if life is going good, I'm eating balance. I'm eating well, the way I was when I grew up, but the minute life hit, because I didn't have all the tools yet. Oops. There you go. I wasn't, I had upgraded, mind you. I was no longer doing brown sugar pop tarts. I was going to my favorite bakery, <laughs> getting my cupcakes, getting this, getting that. Um, so, but I, I was still learning time by time, how to deal with the emotions, not using food. And that, that takes time. It's not something that just happens overnight. Yeah, for sure. And were there health problems related to this at all? Did you find, or were you just like, "Mm, I'm good. I'm just overeating. 
The only thing that I would notice is my weight. My weight would go up when I was having a serious bout of overeating, and then it would go down when I would normalize my eating. I was in my 20s and, and a teenager there. So I maybe it's just a blessing, but I was still young enough that my body could come back and you know, my, my, my immune system was strong. So I wasn't experiencing any health issues then other than weight gain. And, oh, I can't fit my closet. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. that. So you're, you're studying psychology because you do realize that this is an issue and you want to help other women, but did it ever occur to you that you needed to help you too, or you first, or was that? Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, I was drawn to this because I was struggling with it. Right. So it was just like, if I can figure this out for myself, once I do, then I, then I'll be able to. And, you know, at this point I'm thinking I have to, I still have to go get a PhD. Like I have uh, 10 years more of schooling to go through. So by the time I get my PhD, I set up my therapy practice, I should be healed. And by then I can help every woman. That's the way I was thinking about it. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk about then this, um, this connection to food, when did you realize, and if there's a, if there's like a side story to this, please stop me. But when did you realize that you really had to change your eating habits, your food habits? Like, I think it sounds like you knew that you had to, but you weren't just, you weren't ready to like dive off that. Right. right. Okay. Right. I was 32. I was 32. And oh. I, I always tell people that when I, uh, before age 32, I was a, gr I was an adult female with adult responsibilities. But at age 32 is when I became a woman. And I make that distinction because I decided at that point to take care and take responsibility for my actions and my well-being. And I remember distinctly, uh, my father had recently passed away. And my father was like, I'm a daddy's girl. And not only that, but within the same four-day period, my father passed away. I foreclosed on two of my properties in Atlanta, Georgia, and I lost a $300,000 investment. So there was just loss on top of loss, on top of loss, on top of loss. Yikes. Within a, within a four day period. When that happened, that's when I said, girl, there is no amount of food that is going to bring your father back again. Mm. There's nothing that you can eat that will bring back his life so what are you going to do? And that's when I got clear that all the tools that I had been kind of practicing in my 20s and learned in therapy over that when I was in college, it's time. It's time to implement it. And I made a decision. I didn't look back. And I made a decision to become more mindful about my eating and to no longer use food as a tool for dealing with all the emotional upsets. So over the next course of the year, I ended up dropping 60 pounds. I went from a size 12 to a size two in one year and all through mindfulness, mindful eating, that mindful nutrition that, you know, we're talking about. And I started using my journal and my voice and my words to heal me instead of eating them and stuffing them down. Wow. First of all, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. I can't even, I can't even yeah. imagine. But it sounds like you really at that point separated, separated food and how you deal with emotions. They're two different things. Before they were in the same lane and now they're separate. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah, I, I put it back in its proper place, which is, like I said, foundationally, I grew up where food was just delicious. It's mealtime. It's what we use to fuel ourselves and feed ourselves. And it can be tasty. Um, but again, around age 16, I, I conflated it with also like feeling good and helping me get away from the problems in my life. And then at that point, I was like, these problems are huge. <laughs> There's no amount of cake I can eat that's going to like make this go away. So right. what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Size 12 to a size two in one year. Year. Okay. Walk- well, yeah, of course. Um, which is, as we just should say that, that's the healthy way to do it. If you want fast results when it comes to weight loss, you're doing it wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So- um, this weight loss, massive weight loss sounds like walk me through, what was that first step? The first step was the decision, the decision that I was no longer going to use food as an emotional tool anymore. And then I decided, okay, well, what am I going to use? Like I've been using the cupcakes and the, and the macaroni and cheese and the burger, what am I going to use? And then it was just like, I just heard a voice that said, just, just speak let it, let it out, let it be free. Because the thing about emotions, especially as women, like we, we feel we're why all humans are wired to feel, but I think that women have a very special connection in the sense that women give birth to the world. We literally give birth to the entire world without us. There's no humanity. And so part of our, our senses is to be able to tune in and feel what's happening with our children, with our families, with our community, et cetera. So our feelings are very much a part of our communication and how we go through life. And the minute that we silence ourselves, we mute ourselves, we don't express what's there, it ends up staying in. But because it's meant to be expressed and it's meant to come out, when it stays in, it becomes a challenge and it can manifest itself as a dis-ease or some sort of physical issues. In my case, it manifested itself as extra weight. Literally, I was carrying extra weight because I was eating them and not releasing them. And so I decided wherever I was, no matter what happened, the minute I felt myself feeling away, I would take out my journal. So I started traveling with a little journal everywhere. And then it got to the point where I'd be journaling so much, it was like it's all pouring out, that I decided, oh, wait a minute, our phones have a voice recorder. Let me just use my voice recorder. So I, my, my, not this phone, but this phone, this is my, I keep this phone as a memory. Aww, I love <laughs> this that. phone is filled with all the voice notes that I just poured out as I was healing and going through what the, the releasing all the pain and the trauma that I had experienced over those past that decade, honestly, that I hadn't, hadn't let out. And the more, here's what I noticed, the more I released it. Now this became my safe container. My body was no longer the container for my feelings. This device was, and when I released it, all those cravings, and those desires to go eat the cupcake and the macaroni and cheese and a burger and the truffle fries, all that went away hmm. because it was no longer, there was no longer anything attached to it. And then what came, what came about was a normalized sense of eating. I eat when I'm hungry. I stop when I'm full. Right. Right. Mm, truffle fries. Um. <laughs> Still enjoy them. <laughs> that is my, but now differently. Yeah. No, truffle fries are my weakness. Um, uh, it's, it's just funny that you said that. So it sounds like almost, you know, that first step, I, you know, it just like occurred to me kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, like the first step in, 
in recognizing that you have a problem is saying it out loud, like saying, I, I eat to do this, or I drink too much because of this. And so I think saying it out loud, that's what it sounds like you did just sort of saying it. That's it. Say it, release it. And there's so much freedom in saying it because now literally, you know, I, I think that words are very powerful and words are a vibration. And when you speak them and you release them, you literally are communicating outside of yourself to whoever is listening, even, even if you think no one's listening, if you believe in a higher power, I do, the higher power is listening. And when that, when, when that goes out, what comes back is a form of healing and support and help because you can't do this journey by yourself. Um, I, I, don't, I didn't do it by myself at all. I definitely started by myself with the decision, but then what came out of it were resources and people that I could trust who could hold me accountable, that I could share, hey, I'm going through a hard time. Can you just listen? I just need some support right now. I don't really need advice. I just need you to listen. I need someone to validate my experience and, and, and feel me and see me and hear me. Do you, because I'm a journal uh, freak, I journal all the time and it really does help me. That is kind of my therapy. But do you recommend um, saying it like you did, saying it out loud somewhere versus writing it down? Does that make a difference? I recommend both. Here's the, the reason why I moved to using this as a container is because it got to the point where my hand was hurting. I was, by the time I started journaling, so much was coming out. I'm talking years. I was like, what? This, it's, it's 2000 and, and, um, and 10, excuse me, it's 2013. Why is 1996 coming up? Like we're going all the way back. <laughs> but because of that, I realized, okay, now you can start talking. Because at this point, I had about four journals already filled up. Writing, writing, writing. So what I find is there's something cathartic about the, the release that comes from here through the arm, through the hand, and here. There's something very cathartic about that. So agree. So I think, right. So I think both both manifest themselves. And I think when you are in the process of releasing, you will know whether or not you should be writing and or speaking because they, they give different um, release energy. And so it just depends, but I think both are valuable. Okay. So it sounds like the, the first step was really the emotional, getting in touch with the emotional side and really pinpointing what was going on with you. Second step, was it yeah. changing, changing eating habits? Was that the first Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I had already had a foundation. So it wasn't like I had to relearn. It was more so like reconnecting because I had been so disconnected because of that emotional stuff I was dealing with. I was just disconnected from my normal ways of being. So what I decided to do was the first rule was eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. Because as an emotional eater, it's never about hunger or fullness. It's about making sure that I don't want to feel this feeling. I need to escape for the moment with this donut, mm -hmm. right? So once I started following those rules, I knew what to eat. And I knew that my body responded favorably when I had a heavy plant diet. When I ate lots of meat or lots of dairy, um, I've always been lactose intolerant, by the way, like even as a little child, but that did not stop me from eating the grilled cheese, okay? <laughs> So I was like, okay, let's, let's honor the body's signals. That was the second thing. What is the body asking for? And what I found is that when you put food into your body, 
Within the next 30 minutes, sometimes more immediately, but definitely within 30 minutes, your body will tell you whether it's a no or whether it's a go. And that could take the form of whether you feel a, a maybe itchiness or you have phlegm develop in your throat, um, whether you get a headache, whether you feel bloated, right? These are all different sick or you feel kind of tired or maybe your tongue starts to scratch you. These are all signals that what you ate, your body is not feeling. Your body is like, nope, we don't want it. But because our taste buds are generally like in love with the thing that we're eating, we tend to override our body signals. So I made a commitment that I would honor my body over my taste buds. But I was also going to honor my taste buds. But it was just a, a different order, right? Um, so once I followed those three rules, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, honor your body's wisdom, those three things really helped me create a plate that made sense for me, that was balanced, that was tasty, and that left me feeling whole and nourished. Because like I said before, I was eating to fill my holes. And then I switched H-O-L-E-S and I switched and decided, let me eat to make myself whole, W-H-O-L-E. That's good. That's real good. I do appreciate listening to uh, your body. My husband and I have made a lot of changes in diet over the last decade. And it really is about things that, right? And things that I thought were healthy. Um, hummus, for instance, it would just, it was like wrecking my gut. I felt super bloated after eating it. Right. So I was like, maybe it's legumes. Like maybe that's something that I, I can't eat. And so you take that out and it's like, wow, I feel better. And so you really do have to listen to your body. So I love that you said that over your taste buds and yes, they can play together in the sandbox. Right. But listening to, listening to your body, um, just you saying like phlegm, uh, scratchiness, bloating, all of that. I didn't even, that didn't even occur to me until you just said it. And it's like light bulb. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, I love that you mentioned hummus because there are so many foods that, um, when you're looking at food blogs or maybe, you know, like sort of following general dietitian rules, they will list like, here are foods you should eat, here are foods you shouldn't eat. And I find that to be slightly dangerous because it's very generalized. Mm -hmm. And so yes, in and of itself, a legume is a legume. It's generally supposed to be a healthy food, but depending on your constitution and your makeup, it may not work well with your body. Or it could be that in the form that it's done. So maybe it's not that you can't have hummus, but maybe the hummus you need to have are from chickpeas that have been soaked and sprouted mm -hmm. and then turned into hummus versus chickpeas that were just cooked. But you, you, so there's all these differences. And I think that when you add your body's wisdom to the mix, you can never go wrong. Because your body, your body, you know better than any dietitian, any doctor, any nutritionist, you know better than anybody else what you need. So true. That is so true. So let's, let's talk about then the difference because I, you know, before we even started, or maybe, maybe it was while we were recording, um, I asked about you being vegan and you said, it's not vegan. I'm more, oh, yeah. I'm more plant-based. So, um, you know, I, I do understand what vegan is, but explain to me, um, and I'll keep talking so you can drink. See, this is, these are my skills, my interviewing skills. Oh, I'm a reporter. <laughs> yes, yes, journalist. Uh, what are the, what are the common misconceptions then? Because you said you're plant-based. So what does that mean? 
So I think the first misconception is that vegan and plant-based, those labels are synonymous and interchangeable. And so they're not. Um, vegan, you can be a plant-based vegan. Um, however, vegan essentially means that you are, your value is that you just don't believe in killing animals at all for food, for the use of it. You don't believe in eating animal products, et cetera. So it's more value-based things, which means that sometimes at some point, you may not wear leather. You won't have a leather couch, et cetera, right? You, your makeup won't have vegan makeup, et cetera. That's not me. I'm plant-based. And so while I do recognize that I personally don't love the meat industry in the United States, but I'm also not against carnivores. And I make the distinction to say that the meat industry here in the United States, I find is very harmful and damaging, not just to the planet, but also to the economy, to human bodies, et cetera. But as a carnivore, when I think about there are carnivorous based uh, societies here on earth. And so if I think about some indigenous groups around the world who rely on hunting to eat, they're eating meat, but it's sustainable. They're not killing off loads of cows so they can just have like meat stocked up in their freezer. They're killing off one cow or, one, or whatever animal it is so that the entire village can eat. And when they do, it's a sacrifice. There's a lot of gratitude in that process. They recognize that this animal is sacrificing its life so that the village can continue to live on. So in that sense, the animal does live on just in a different form because it's helping literally extend the life of the village, right? And they're gonna use everything. So that's why I make that extinction for myself. In terms of being plant-based, um, I grew up, like I said, with a Jamaican mom and a Black American dad uh, who grew up in the South. And so my father's family and my mother's family both grew up on the land. They grew up as farmers eating. So er everywhere we lived, my parents always had a garden. My mother was more so into planting flowers and trees and shrubs. My father was into planting food. So I always saw that the land was a very powerful way to continue human uh, existence and human health. And I remember like there would always be the harvest and we'd eat that. And so for me, I'm no stranger to having plants on my plate. As I got older and started recognizing that my body had wisdom and I was gonna honor the wisdom, I could see that when I ate the plants, my body was happy. I didn't have any of those digestive issues. When I ate more meat or more dairy, my body was like, nope. So that's why I became a plant-based eater. And I still make room every now and then for fish or for the occasional meat when I travel or eggs when I travel because one, like I said, I was just in Panama. The, the whole vegan plant-based situation. <laughs> Panama is a very meat and starch country. Like, like then fish there, you know? So, so I had to um, make way and every now and then I would have fish to sustain myself because it was more challenging to get other stuff. And I didn't feel any way. My body didn't feel upset or bad because that fish is also caught fresh from the ocean right. versus fish that's like farm raised sitting in a freezer somewhere before it gets to you, then it sits in your freezer until you decide to cook it. Mm -hmm. Whole different process. Mm -hmm. So that's the distinction for me. Okay. Um, and you found that, again, like you said, plant-based foods really work for you. And that that's yeah. something that makes you feel better. Do you agree that, like we were talking earlier, everybody's different, right? So maybe plant-based doesn't work for this person that you're helping out, but you have to find what works for you. Okay. Absolutely. 
you have to find what works for you. And I'll say this, I have not met anyone where a whole foods plant-based. I want to make that distinction because plant-based can also mean the impossible burger, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's made, it's plants, it's based in plants, but it has literally become such a, such a science project <laughs> that is really not a plant anymore versus taking black beans, quinoa, and some almond flour, putting that in a food processor and then making burger patties. Mm-hmm. That, that is plant-based because it's way more, whole foods plant-based because it's way more closer resembling to the plant. Um, but I have never met anyone yet in my line of work where eating a whole foods plant-based diet has not supported them, healed them, or even reversed some of their issues. Interesting. Yeah, I've always been a fan of, even when it comes to meat, but taking something that's whole then breaking it down and creating, creating your meal. Right. Because even when it comes to, you know, people are like, why don't you just buy like the pre-grated cheese? And it's like, because it's been through a process. I want, I want the whole block and then I can manipulate it how I want to. Right. Not to mention, not only has it been through a process, but when you, a lot of people don't know this. And when I, when I found that I was like, oh my God, when you buy the um, grated cheese, it's already grated they add in like a, a fiber. It's like a wood cellulose fiber or something. Or like cornstarch, cornstarch. So it doesn't stick. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, that it, so that it doesn't stick. And so it's not just cheese, but because of the labeling laws here in the United States, if something is under a certain percentage, they don't have to say that it's in there. So you look and it says hundred percent cheddar cheese. That's a lie. It's not. And if you notice, obviously when you shred it yourself, it can stick. And so manufacturers do so much in the processing that after a while, you're not really eating the food you think you are. You're more so eating a product um, or some scientific experiment. And over time, that will have its effects on your body. Right. And the thing is, most people think that they get away with it because in your 20s, even your 30s, in your teenage years, like your body's so efficient, it's just cleaning it out, doing what it needs to do. But by the time you hit 30, 40, uh, hello, the joints start talking to you, <laughs> your brain starts saying, I can't really process this thought right now. I'm tired. Your energy levels decline. I just turned 41. And I, 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 I promised myself that I would be an embodiment and an example of what it looks like to feed yourself whole so that you can keep your vitality. I'm, I'm a firm believer that aging is, you don't have to age because you're acquiring more years that you can literally age beautifully and gracefully as, as a human by simply sustaining and feeding yourself well. Damn, Shelly, 41? 41. Damn, yes. girl, you look good. You look really good. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, speaking, just one other example when it comes to like whole foods, I just made something last night with um, whole tomatoes in the can. And I hear this other thing too. Why don't you just buy like the crushed or the diced? And it's like, because I want to... Mm-hmm. I want to take the tomato in my hand and crush it myself, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think here, where where I find that um, people in the West more so, because I find that if you're in a, if you're in the a more global economy, um, you may not even always have the luxury of buying all the processed stuff because it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. But what we are really accustomed to here in the West is just convenience. Everywhere we're told is you got to save time. Time is money. You know, you have, because all of our hours are generally spent working. And so because we put so much time working, when it comes to now working on ourselves, we put ourselves last. We don't have a lot of time. So we end up taking all these shortcuts. But I tell everyone that there are costs to those shortcuts. 
like when you can't, when you are taking the, the, um, the processed food over the whole food, you're also skimping out on your health because the nutrition is not as high and not as valuable when it's been sitting in a can or a, um, or have the, what is it? The cornstarch added to the cheese as it is if you buy the real thing. And so I think it's worth it. I'm not advocating that you have to literally start growing your own uh, food and have a garden and just take it all from scratch. But I am saying that at least for some of your meals, if you can think about balancing your plate, where part of it is you take the time to do some of it more so from scratch rather than everything being processed. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I grew up in the South. My grandmother was a farmer, essentially, and the tomatoes and the corn and the cucumbers that existed in her kitchen came from the backyard, right? So good. It's such a huge difference. I I was having a conversation the other day about uh, tomatoes that are grown in your backyard versus tomatoes that you get at the grocery store. There is no comparison, people. None. 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 The minute you like, you bite into it, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like you could eat the whole tomato from your background, from your backyard. Yeah. It's just like adding fruit is so delicious. Yes, it is. It's yeah. a com- it's a completely different ball game. Um. So when did yeah. you decide that you wanted to help other women in their journey to become mindful and healthier same age when i was 32 the minute i decided that i was going to make the switch for myself i said okay i'm going to go through my transformation and when i go through my transformation i'm going to help others and i started helping others when i was 33 a year later i started helping others i started just being more active on facebook um and so i used to offer these services where I would um, take whatever people loved. I'd say, hey, tell me what your favorite craving is and I'll transform it into something healthier. And so, you know, whether it was Ben and Jerry's cookie dough ice cream, give it to me. I'm going to make it plant-based and we're going to figure out a way to make this healthier. So I would take out the milk and then use coconut milk instead. Um, And so even now my mindful plate cooking show YouTube channel is really about that. It's like taking all the things that you love to eat, but then like substituting. I'm a firm believer that you don't have to stop eating what you love. You just have to elevate the ingredients on your plate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so, um, yeah, so that was that. And then I started with the recipes and the food. And then, um, when I was 36 is when I started doing the coaching programs where, um, uh, I would essentially work with women who were, um, having really emotional relationships or food, but those of that relationship was causing havoc on their health and in their weight. So they can't fit their closet, their, their, uh, their blood pressure issues, you know, pre-diabetic, et cetera, or just not having the energy to keep up with their lives. And at the end of the day, I see that nutrition is a tool to help you live out your life's purpose. And so if you aren't fortified because you're eating the foods that literally zap you of energy, um, then when you wake up in the morning, you don't really want to do what's on your to-do list. You don't want to live out what's, what's what your day is calling you to do. And I do believe that everyone has a calling. You may not always be in touch with it because energetically you're down. But once you start to change what's on your plate, and I and I always like to say, like, do the ingredients on your plate contribute to what makes you great? And if they don't, let's shift that. Because I know that by feeding yourself well, by nourishing yourself whole, you wake up differently. And when you wake up differently, 
you get to enjoy your day and participate in your day with way more energy and thrive than if you were just kind of getting by because you don't have the nutrition to fuel you. What were you hearing from women that you were helping? Oh my goodness. A lot of them were just kind of fed up with themselves. A lot of them couldn't fit their, fit their closet. Mm -hmm. A lot of them felt they weren't, they weren't confident anymore. And I heard a lot of when I was a teenager, when I was in my twenties, I was this woman. Now all of a sudden I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, who is this? And so there is a, almost a disconnect and a disbelief, like, how did I get here? And so, um, most women are, are coming because they're just discontent with their, with their bodies. And ultimately they know that because they don't like their body, they end up, they start hiding. They don't want to show up. Even like if they're married or in, in relationships, they realize that, you know, being intimate with their partners is no longer as fun because they're so subconscious now. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of that. Ouch. Ouch. Um, and then you just basically, cause I know for when you, when you do decide ultimately, especially as a female, I think that you want to make healthy changes. You want to change up your diet. It's kind of like, okay, where do I start? Right. Um, I can't, I can't just go to McDonald's and find a healthy version there. I've really got to start in my kitchen, but it's overwhelming. And so did you, did that click for you? And then that's when the YouTube kind of your cooking show came along. Okay. So it, it was, I'll say this, it was actually, that didn't click initially because I grew up in a very cooking family and I also love to cook. And so I'm like, yeah, let's get into the kitchen. It wasn't until I worked with enough women that I realized, oh, there are women who actually don't enjoy cooking. It's a chore, especially when you're not only cooking for yourself, but you're cooking for the children and the husband, you know, every, and some women are caretakers for maybe their parents or other siblings or whatever reason they can't take care of themselves. And so that's when I realized, okay, let me figure out ways to make this approachable, affordable and available. And so in those three things, that's when I said, okay, well, even if a woman can't work with me now and through the program, if I have the YouTube program, excuse me, the YouTube channel as a, as a resource, then she can start there. She can start to look and see, okay, here are ways that I can make this meal. Here's a different way of thinking about food. And so, um, yeah, that wasn't the immediate shift, but eventually after talking to enough women, I realized, oh, everyone is not like you, Shelly. <laughs> everyone is not trying to spend their entire life in the kitchen. <laughs> no, I, I feel that because I'm the same way. I love being in the kitchen and it doesn't make sense to me when someone's like, oh, I hate cooking. I'm like, what? What? How do you eat? <laughs> What what do you eat? If you don't make it, where does it come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is. And then that's also when I really started to realize, okay, well, let me start to go out and see who, what type, what stores and which restaurants are offering meals that are going to also fortify people. Because there are some restaurants, even now more and more, even like fast food restaurants, um, not when I say fast food, meaning like a Chipotle, like they're actually, you know, quick service, quick turnaround, but not McDonald's, um, who are where you can go and get something quality for the, for the time being while you're shifting and figuring it out. But if your time doesn't always allow you to prep, prep all your meals in the kitchen, you know, how can you substitute? Or even, um, I remember there was one time I was living in an apartment temporarily that I didn't have access to a kitchen here in New York. And so I had to go to Whole Foods and I would go to the deli section and I would buy all the prepared foods 
And I would buy enough to last for the week where I could make different meals. And so there are ways in which I started to think outside the box and say, okay, well, you know, some of the women I work with, they, they may not have access to a kitchen for whatever the reasons. And so how then do they make choices that they can feed themselves well? Because yeah, everyone is not trying to cook. Have you found that in helping women, um, does race play a role in, 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 in weight loss? I, I love this question. Come on with the questions. I love this question. Yes. So here, here's something that really came out um, 2020. Now, as you know, there is an entire racial reckoning here in the United States and the world, to be honest. And within the food industry, it became really apparent that race had been playing a serious role. I can attest to it, some of the stuff myself, like applying to jobs and you can't say that's why you didn't get it, but you know, like deep down, you're like, yeah, there's something about my approach to cooking that you're like, yeah, that's not really in vogue right now. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> there's a whole bunch of people who eat this, but it, I digress. Um, but what I do recognize is that um, colonization has played a huge role for black and brown women in the way they see their bodies and the way they relate to food. So I'll just give a very quick timeline, but if we think about the role of colonization. So you have European colonizers who are going to black and brown lands and essentially removing people from the lands. Now, not when you remove someone from the land, you don't just literally take the person physically and put them somewhere else, like in the case of slavery, where you had millions of Africans stolen from Africa and then, and then brought to the new world, the Americas, Caribbean, Latin America. But what also happens is you have a separation and they cut off from customs culture. So that land is not just a physical place where people live. It's also a place of sustenance where people grew their food, where traditions were, were, were fostered and nurtured over the years. The minute you cut that off, I don't know what to eat. I'm no longer attached to my land. I don't have my seeds. I don't have my foodways. I don't have my customs. So now you put me into this new place, but because you see me as um, labor, not as human, I'm three-fifths of a person according to the US Constitution at one point, then you're just feeding me to keep me going, but you're not feeding me to keep me whole. So now you're you're feeding uh, whatever gruel, right? Like some porridge type of situation just to keep us full, or you're giving whatever scraps of the animal. And so that then begins to define this new culture, this new food way of eating that begins to uh, grow in the Caribbean, in Latin America, as well as here in the United States. I will say the Caribbean and Latin America is a little different because um, they still were able to keep more of their customs than here in the United States. So then what happens now is I'm completely detached from my way of eating. I don't know my food customs, my food ways, and the food I'm eating is just there to sustain me, just there to keep me full, but it's not necessarily the food that heals me the food that makes me well. And so there's, there is a huge um, movement now in decolonizing our diet. And that's one of the things that I teach as well is how do you begin to decolonize your diet when you particularly come from a group of people who have been systemically removed from their lands and forcibly removed from their lands. And then the other thing about how black and brown women see their bodies, if you grew up in the United States for the longest, and you know this, in the 90s, like the standard was a very, very skinny cake moss. Um, the standard was generally a European woman who was on the smaller side. And I have always had hips. I've always had a booty. I've always had thighs. And I remember, right? <laughs> I remember 
um, in the 90s, like thinking that I was too fat because I went to my middle and high school, I was mostly in a Caucasian school. So I was usually the only black person in my class. And I remember comparing myself and thinking like, God, I'm overweight. I look back, I was nowhere overweight. I was like a size four, <laughs> you know, I was nowhere overweight, oh. but I wasn't a zero, right? Wow, oh my yeah. God, that oh, that so screws with your brain. Oh my gosh. So then that, that's your foundational years. And so what I find then is that the beauty standards, the beauty standards, if you're not attached to your culture and your culture has been colonized, then the idea that white is right, if you're brown, stick around, if you're black, get back. These are like really crazy ideas, but they are persistent and pervasive and they're not always loudly spoken, but the undertone is there when it comes to our relationship with food and our bodies. And so decolonizing beauty and decolonizing our relationship with food is something that I include in my programs because I recognize that if you're black and brown, you may not be conscious of it, but it is playing a role in how you feed yourself or how you don't. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, is it kind of, would it kind of be the same thing if I were to instantly move to South America and I'm surrounded by foods that I didn't grow up with, that I'm not used to eating different spices, different plants. I mean, that's, that's kind of the same thing, right? And, and you don't have access to what you did grow up with. Right. So still, if you have access to what you grew up with, then it's different because you have a choice. You could choose not to eat that and still access what you had. But the minute you no longer have access to what you used to have, so you're forced almost to eat this, this other thing, but this other thing may not feed you the way that, like when I say feed you, obviously it'll keep you full, but it may not nourish you, right? It may not contribute to your body's well-being the way the other food did, because that's the food that generationally your ancestors ate. And so, yeah. Yeah. How, how did, this is a loaded question. How dangerous is social media, when it comes to, especially for females, when it comes to maybe body image or, you know, I, I do see pages out there, Instagram pages with women who may have lost weight themselves. And so they're saying, let me do what, what works for me. Let me put that on Mm -hmm. you. And they don't really have qualifications like yourself. They don't have um, that background to teach. How dangerous, mm-hmm. how dangerous is it for, I mean, do we really as women, I mean, you, you see it too. You see these pictures and you're just like, I want to, I want to look like that. I mean, that, that's dangerous to me. That's scary. Here's what I think is, this, this is probably controversial, but I, I think what's more dangerous is that we're not allowed a diversity of thoughts when it comes to what beauty looks like. And so the idea is that beauty only comes in this very limited box. As long as you're in the box, you're good. The minute you start, you look outside the box, it's like, oh my goodness. So, and so because of that, because of that thought, we then go to social media and we compare ourselves. Well, so, so comparison is really the challenge. So I, I challenge women who consume social media, myself included, that you go to social media and you only allow what feeds you. So if there is something on your scroll and you see it and you feel something in your spirit, it's like, oh, I don't, you feel yourself shrinking or comparing yourself, unblock, delete, unfollow. (laughs) Because I do believe that 
on social media, you're going to find loads of people. And for that woman that you're talking about, right? She, in, in her heart of hearts, she's really trying to celebrate her success. Like, hey, you guys, I made it into the box. <laughs> I finally look like what they told me to do. Here's what I did if you want to look like me. And she may not also be checking in and cognizant that she is also perpetuating the stereotype, this idea that beauty only looks this way. So what I really love to follow are the accounts where um, you're seeing all types of uh, body sizes. I'm starting to see some underwear companies who are literally putting women. Hello, right? Isn't Hi. that like, thank no. you. I know. I have noticed that too. Oh my God. It is so refreshing. Refreshing. Because I, I, I remember in the nineties looking at all the underwear uh, companies and stuff. I'm like, I don't look like that. Nope. And so, and I never felt beautiful wearing underwear, but now I'm like, yes, show us what all the bodies look like because you know, everybody is different and that's the reality of it. And so I don't necessarily think that social media is dangerous as much as I think that the mindset that we take as individuals when we approach social media, that's where the danger is. And so you have to remember that you're, I say this, you're, if your feed does not feed you, then unfollow, delete. Your feed has to feed you. And so I, I just honestly think that um, we're a work in progress as a society and, uh, you know, as individual members, we make up our society. And I do think it's our job to really, um, embody ourselves as we are and then show that to the world and allow the world to catch up, <laughs> yeah. catch up and meet us where we are, because we're all not going to be a zero Kate Moss or uh, whatever size Kim Kardashian is and in between. We were all blessed with our unique way of being. Um, I just want to say thank you for that because lately I have noticed that my social media feeds have not been feeding me. There are a few posts that I come across on the daily and it makes me feel, and it's not even really body image related. It's more like success related where I'm like, why am I not there? And I get, I get anxiety just looking at these posts and I'm just thinking this week, I was like, it's, you got to stop. Like you got to put your blinders on because my path is my path. Right. And I can't focus on anybody else's path and where they are. So I so appreciate yeah. you saying that because that has been a huge issue for me lately, but yeah. I can understand women out there who are just trying to do the thing and, mm -hmm. and they are looking at their social media feeds going, man, I'm not there yet. Why am I not there yet? Right. In Jamaica, we have a saying, my mother always used to tell me this when I was little, and it goes, what's for you can be on for you. So what's yours cannot be not yours. Oh. When it's time, it's coming. And you rec I recognize that what, what, what I started to do, especially for the success, right? Like you see someone that's like, you're making this much money, or you've got so many followers, or you got this media exposure, or you did this, and oh my God, and I'm out here like plugging away and it hasn't happened, right? And then what I say to myself, I say, girl, when you see that, celebrate it. Because that means that if it's possible for her, it's possible for you. Okay. That's what, that's how I see it. This is, she's showing you what's available. And she's saying, hey, you guys, I was able to get this. That means if she got it, there's infinite opportunity. There's no, there's no lack. This is an abundant world. I truly believe that. And so when I see people who have gone 
um, to or achieve the level of success that I know is already on my vision board and I want that for myself too, then I say, okay, great. That means it's coming. Let me keep working because the opportunities are out there. And I also recognize that some things, to be honest, if I had that level of success, I probably would, um, um, what do you call it, fall under it. Because at this moment, I'm only prepared for what I'm able to do. And so different levels of success require you to be a different person, to grow into a different version of yourself. And if you haven't gotten there yet, when it comes, if it comes too fast, you may not know what to do with it. So I remind myself, like I keep, um, I learned this from one of my mentors, Daniel Leslie, and she taught, she calls it she doesn't call it the brag board. She calls it something else, but I call it the brag board. But essentially, it's a list of all the things that I've done. Like even this podcast, for example, right? I'm like, oh my God, every time I get booked to do a podcast, I'm so excited because it means that the message that's in me gets to reach other people, right? And so I don't know, you and I both know we're doing this now. This is going to live on beyond this, beyond this moment. Mm -hmm. But I highly believe that while the algorithm sometimes feels tricky, that there's a higher power behind that. And when someone late at night is looking for support and help, they're gonna find this podcast and they're gonna listen to this conversation and they're gonna be helped and healed because of what you and I are doing in this moment. So I think that when we take that mindset to social media and we see someone who's doing a thing that we haven't done yet, recognize for yourself, if you, if you see that, you're seeing it because that is the higher power reminding you it's coming for you too. Okay. Well, now I feel like an asshole. Thank you for changing my <laughs> mind. No, thank you. No, Shelly, I needed that. I seriously, I did. I needed that. I needed you to say that to me today. So um, if if I got yeah. anything from this conversation, it's like, I got that. You're right. You're right. And I do, um, please don't think I don't celebrate women because I do, but I do feel oh, that, I feel that ping of anxious, anxious and anxiety sometimes, but that's a, that's a beautiful way to think about it. And that's how I will think about it from, from this day. Absolutely. And of course you celebrate women. Your podcast is a celebration. Every woman you bring on Mm -hmm. is a celebration. So so. yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about foods. Some of your, some of your favorite foods, some of the things that you've cooked on your YouTube channel. What do you just, what do you love when you get in the kitchen? What do you just love to cook and eat? Okay. I, I really I grew up on Caribbean and Black American food, like I said. So I, I really like soul food. So I, I love I love taking the food that I grew up on and then transforming it into plant-based versions, but not yucky. <laughs> Cause let's say, let, let's be real, we've all had a vegan macaroni and cheese and we were like, ugh, what yeah. I would never eat this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love, I love doing that. And I I will say that, like, I stand firm in, in, in my, uh, my ability that I can transform anyone who eats my food to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's vegan. Like, I, I love those moments. And so one of my favorite things that I've done so far is remaking Jamaican oxtails. Now, oxtails is like a quintessential Jamaican dish. And that's one of the things like, come on. I have heard so many Caribbean people tell me that who are trying to go vegan or plant-based and they say, you know what? It's the oxtails that keep making me not be fully committed. (laughs) I bet. Because we found, yeah, you understand? Like, so I found a way and that, I did that video. That video is my highest viewed video on YouTube at this moment. It's, um, 
I'm not sure what the number is because I, I, I'm not numbers obsessed in that sense, but I know it's like in the five figures. And so all that being said is like, I love making those sort of foods and then wowing people's taste buds. Um, and then also as much as I can do some of the more complicated stuff, like making, you know, plant-based oxtails, I also can keep it simple because as you may know, when you are someone who loves to cook, some days you just don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, it's like, just give me an apple and some tea and I'm good. Give me some water. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can go back and forth. So I have to ask, what do you use in your oxtail recipe? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So the meat texture is made from king oyster mushrooms. So I take those and I roast them and I shred them. And that gives that meat-like texture. And then I take black eyed peas and chickpea flour. And chickpea flour is one of my favorite vegan substitutes because it can be made into so much. And I make that into kind of like a paste. And I mix that paste with the mushrooms. So what happens is when it cooks up, because they're beans, of course, that moisture is going to dry out. And then it has this more meaty cut through texture, as you think of like a bean patty, but mix in with the uh, the mushroom shred. So now you have that meat like pull in texture. So when you pull it apart, it looks like meat, like how oxtail does. And you know how mm -hmm. oxtail can have that gristly kind of texture? Mm -hmm. All right. So to do that, we take rice paper. So you take rice paper, which you would use to make like a, a Vietnamese wrap or something. Right. Take the rice paper and you spread that chickpea, black eyed pea, mushroom mixture on the rice paper, roll it up, cut it into pieces. So you have little oxtails and just like oxtail, you have that like bone looking structure. <laughs> you have the grisly pieces. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Wow. And then I, I, that's how what I use. And in the video that I put on YouTube, I did a taste test with my friends who were all from Jamaica. And I, cause I was like, I can't cook this and put on YouTube and be like, Hey, it's so good. No, no, <laughs> don't take my word for it. Listen to these people here. And they all were like, wow, I'm surprised at how authentic tasting this is. That is amazing. How did you come up with that? In the Instagrams and the YouTubes, there's a woman that I follow called sister woman vegan. She's out of uh, England, out of London. And interesting enough, she and I are the same mix. She's Black American and Jamaican, lives in London, right? And she did it. And I was like, that's amazing. I want to try this. And so I adapted her recipe and then used it for the, for the video. And because I also believe in bigging up other people in the space, mm -hmm. like my YouTube channel isn't just for me. It's, it's to celebrate and honor anyone who's doing this work. And so I told everybody, hey, go get her a cookbook. <laughs> Go get her a cookbook because I, I made my own changes where her cookbook was the foundation that I used to create this. Um, but a lot of the recipes, that recipe was inspired by her, but a lot of the recipes are generally inspired by my taste buds. And that's also one of the reasons I think just why I stay plant-based and not fully vegan because every now and then I want to be able to try the, the meat-like version of the thing and then figure out how I can make it plant-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. But it sounds mm -hmm. like you're just incredibly creative in the kitchen, incredibly creative <laughs> and, and yes. helping others. I, I love that. And I love um, and, and I have watched a few of your episodes and it's just it does. The, the biggest thing is that it inspires. It inspired me, at least. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this plant based version um, because I do like to go meatless occasionally. And so I want to try things that are healthy for me, but they have they have to taste good, have to. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the number one requirement. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. But if not, you won't stick to it. It won't be sustainable. Nope, not at all. Um, we're going to wrap up, but you, yeah. oh, what a good conversation. What an amazing conversation. This has been so great. Yes. So good. So good. Okay. I'm going to get to the final three. Uh, best advice you've ever been given. Best advice I've ever been given. Um, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. My mother always said that to me. It's an African proverb. Shelly, I can't believe you just said that. I say that all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> Look at that. Um, it's real, though. Because we'll get overwhelmed with everything. And my mom would be like, how do you eat an elephant? And I'm like, first of all, we don't eat elephants. But I will honor you. <laughs> One bite at a time. <laughs> I, I literally cannot believe you said that. I say that all the time. And I used to tell that to my reporters all the time. When they would get overwhelmed, I would say, hey, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, step by step. Just take it step by step. Yes, absolutely. It's the only way. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so. God, that's, that's crazy. I cannot believe you just said that. That is bizarre to me. Okay, uh, moving on. What's your happy place? Oh, the dance floor, without a doubt. The dance floor. Listen, give me music. I love going to dance festivals. I love going to parties where there's a really great DJ. I love turning on music at my home and dancing. And I love also the kitchen. That's my other happy place with music playing. Of course. Yeah. Uh, what Any kind of music? What's your favorite music to dance to? I love Compa. Compa is a beautiful music from Haiti. Um, what I love about Compa is that it's instrument rich. Um, I find that like music used to be that way here in the, in the U.S., but the computer took over and now it's like, you know, beats and sounds and stuff. But I love Compa because they highlight all these different instruments. There's a guitar and there's a drum and there's a keyboard and it's just beautiful. And they all have solos, kind of like jazz music. You know how jazz would have the solos, everyone come together. So Compa is like that. And, and Compa is generally um, experienced live. They do have obviously recording, but it's it's they still have the culture where the bands travel and they come and the bands play and everyone gets dressed up and comes out and dances and you know a set could go on forever, but one song could at least be fifteen minutes, twenty minutes long, and you're just vibing and dancing. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, for me, in the kitchen with Cuban music is my all time. Oh yes. Yeah, I, I love that too. I just, yeah. um, I just rediscovered, um, played the soundtrack to Buena Vista Social Club, the documentary. Oh, I remember the documentary. I went to see it. Yeah. So that just really, um, it just spoke to me, spoke to my heart uh, the other day. So yes, I feel you there. Um, okay. Yeah. In all things, in all things, food and and drink, uh, what do you crave? Uh. What always sounds good. What I, I was going to say, I don't crave as much anymore because we have the whole craving conversation. <laughs> no more eating. But what, what do I enjoy? What sounds good? Lately, it has been fresh drinks. So I'm loving taking fresh fruit, squeezing it, and then adding like a carbonated uh, water to it to kind of make like a spritzer. I love that. Um, I've also been loving lately Mexican food. Like just give me a nacho, give me a tostada, give me a taco. I'm a fan. Layer it with the beans and the veggies and the sauces. 
Yeah. That can never go wrong. I so agree. Yeah. Tacos are the best. Um, you have been so much fun. You've also been incredibly enlightening and inspirational. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I want to tell everybody one more time, mindful plate show on YouTube. You literally can just yeah. search YouTube for mindful plate show. You'll pop up subscribe, mm-hmm. right. And follow. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then you're also the founder of mindful nutrition school and you are a mindful nutritionist helping other women. And you say, girl, you don't even have to go to the gym. Just get in your kitchen and you can lose some weight. That, listen, that's it. Lose weight without the gym. Instead of working out, we work in. And if you're interested in working on your own relationship with food, because you know, it's getting in the way of your health and your well-being, go to mindfulnutritionschool.com, sign up, and I will be in your inbox. I love it. Well, and you know, I've been told this so many times, if you do want to lose weight, the the second step should be maybe the gym if you just want to feel good. But the first step is what you're putting in your mouth. Oh, absolutely. 80% of the body is determined by what you eat. That other 20% movement, do it for sure. It's good for you. But you got to change your plate and put the ingredients on there that's going to make you great. I so agree. Shelly Chapman, you've been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Close. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.